Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like him. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Praise be to God. Last week, we talked about the family of God. We talked about how when Jesus comes, he saves to himself a people, not just individuals. We lose in our Western individualized society the notion of the church as a family sometimes, the notion of the church as a people sometimes. And we don't hold together the idea that Jesus saves individuals, but he saves them into a people, a kingdom, a family. We looked at a couple of scriptures that specifically talk about the church as the family of God. And the reason that we began this series with that theme of family is because I think the theme of family is what drives all of our mission and values at Christ Community. The idea of us as the family of God set out into the world to expand this family, to grow this family, not necessarily by natural birth, although we're grateful for the children who are born among us, but by new birth, by rebirth into Christ as we go and we share the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And within this family, we We gather together, and as we gather together, we grow together, and as we grow together, then we go with the love of Christ to our neighbors so that we can continue to grow the family. And then after this, we're going to be talking about the values that motivate us as a family. But today, we begin with this first mission statement, this first mission value of gathering together. We gather as the family. What kind of family would you be if you never gathered together? Right? What kind of family would you be if you never got together around the dinner table? I mean, that would be a pretty fractured, pretty terrible family, right? When we talk about, like, culturally the breakdown of families, and one of the things that drives the breakdown of families is the busyness of the individuals in that family. you got parents who are given over to all of the activities that their kids do so that the family's never actually together. The parents are just shuttle drivers for children who are doing all kind of stuff. Right? We... we we as, as American families, we oftentimes, we lose this value of gathering together even within our own homes. And as our kids grow up, we become fractured with mom doing this and dad doing this and the kids doing this, and we're never really together. Or when we are together, there are distractions all over the place. You know, everybody's got their own personal screen where the TV's off in the background and nobody's paying attention to the conversation that's happening around the table. We're distracted from one another. So even when we're gathered, we're not really together. We're gathered as individuals with all of our different focuses and we're not actually in this thing together. As a family, as as the church family, we want to model something better than that. 
Right? We want to model something to the families in our midst and to the wider world, something better than a whole bunch of individuals with our individual focuses and our individual desires and, and our individual pursuits who are maybe in the same place, but we're not together. We want to model togetherness when we are gathered. That's really what drives the value of being the gathered people of God for us as Christ Community Church. As we are the family of God gathered, we are gathered around one central focus, not with all of us looking off in different directions, but with the one central focus of Jesus Christ and the one central focus of the family that he's called us to. And so that's what we see here happening in Acts chapter 2. Now, if you watch, like, if you look at TV through the ages, you see this theme come up of the, the scattered family. That's kind of what I'm calling it anyway. Like, and the, you see these, these shows about these groups of friends who are not related by blood and yet who form these really deep, intimate relationships. One of the earliest examples of this for me was Cheers. Everybody getting together at the bar, those folks are a family. Yeah, they're coming in after work, they're exhausted, and they're just sharing their lives and they're pouring their lives out. And then over the years, you see other shows grow up. I think one of the big draws of the show Friends was that here's this group of people who are not related by blood, who are closer than most brothers and sisters, who are closer than most people related by blood. One of our favorite new shows is A Million, Million Little Things. We love this show, man. It's just about this friend group that gets together, and they're closer than any family I know right now. I mean, they're closer than, than most people who are related by blood, and they're in one another's lives, and they're drawn together by tragedy, and yet out of tragedy, they, bore, they bear this, this incredible bond. But, but here's the problem with all of these shows, with all the, the stories of gathered families that are not related by blood that we watch and that we partake of. Drama drives their relationships. I mean, through all of them, right? It's just, it's drama and it's sinfulness of the world that is constantly driving wedges in these relationships. And, and I think there's a subset of us who love to watch these shows and, and love to engage with these relationships because we like the drama, because we enjoy the drama. Some people, I think, do get a high off of drama, but I think the majority of us, and I could be wrong, maybe I've just got too rosy a view of the human condition, but I think really the reason we like the drama is because we like the resolutions. We like the reconciliation. We like to cry at the moment when that broken relationship is finally brought together. We love these stories of hope. I talked some weeks ago about the Nightbird story. Remember the, the girl who uh, auditioned for America's Got Talent, who had gone through three rounds of cancer and gone through a divorce in the middle of it and yet radiated hope from the stage. And there's no mention of her faith in the show and yet, if you're watching this as a follower of Jesus, you're like, this girl has got to know Jesus. Like, you can't have that kind of hope radiate from you and not know Jesus. And so I'm watching it, and I'm, you're watching these millions of people love her story because they love the hope. They love the reconciliation. Maybe they don't know anything about Jesus, but their heart as a human hungers for hope hungers for restoration and reconciliation. And I think the thing that draws us to shows like Friends and Million Little Things and even Cheers is not so much the brokenness and the drama, but the desire for hope and reconciliation through it all. We like to see the brokenness because we want to see the reconciliation. I think that's at the bottom of what humans desire because 
as people made in the image of God, we long for wholeness even when we don't know what to call it. We long for goodness. We long for reconciliation. We long for intimacy even when we don't know how to name it. And so many people end up trying to seek that out and find it in all the wrong places and they destroy themselves in their lives seeking after hope and reconciliation and intimacy because they're not searching for it in Christ. Because they're not searching for it in the family of God. They're looking for it everywhere else. And this is the story of human history. If there's one defining characteristic of the fall of humanity, of human sinfulness, it is estrangement. You ever thought about human sin in those terms as primarily an issue of estrangement? Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3 and take a look at this. So in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve have been created. And they've named all the animals and they're living in the Garden of Eden. God has given them one commandment. God says, don't eat from that tree. There are two trees in the center of the garden. There's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says, you can eat from any tree in this entire garden, including the tree of life. Just don't touch that one. Don't touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, on their own, because they are created in the image of God, because they are holy, they have no desire in and of themselves to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Until until the serpent comes in. And this outside force reveals to them their hearts and says, actually, look, look, that, didn't that fruit look really good? And, and you know what? God is just jealous of what you could be if you ate that fruit. God is just jealous of how powerful and how incredible you could become. You could unseat God if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God knows that, and he's afraid of you. So don't you really want to take a bite? And the serpent tempts them into pursuing power, pursuing authority, and into eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now the great irony, and I've pointed this out before, but the great irony of Adam and Eve falling to temptation and eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is they're already created in the image of God. They're created to rule over the earth as God would. They're created to be to be rulers of the earth under the rule and reign of God, they're already as powerful and as glorious as they can be. Eating from the tree is only going to diminish that. And yet the serpent is successful in tempting them to pursue more power and glory by eating of this tree. And so they do. And then in chapter 3, they meet with God. They have this tradition, Adam and Eve did, of walking with God in the cool of the day, in the evening time, as the sun was setting, they would walk with God and in this gorgeous garden that he had created and they would just talk with him face to face and they would enjoy his company. And now after they've been tempted and they've eaten of this fruit of this tree, now they're afraid. They're afraid of the very thing that brought them comfort and peace. They're afraid of the very person for whom they were created. And already sin has destroyed their relationship because now they're afraid of the person who loves them the most. And so God finds them in the garden after they've eaten, after they've sinned against God, disobeyed God, and God pronounces over them and the garden and the serpent who tempted them a curse. 
And we find that in Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 to 24. Now, I'm not going to read it all, but I'm just going to kind of go over what this curse is about. So God comes down and he, he asks them, who told you you were naked? Because now they're ashamed. They're not wearing any clothes. They're ashamed of this. The sin has, has broken their own understanding of themselves. And God says to them, well, since you ate of the tree, now woman, you are going to desire to dominate your husband and he's going to rule over you. And this is the beginnings of sinful patriarchy where men rule over women. And so this is, this is a consequence of the curse of the fall. And in addition, woman, you're going to have pain in childbirth because of your sin. Now, here's what you got to understand about the curse of God in this. This is not what God wants for his people. This is not what God wants for creation or for humanity. He's just pronouncing the consequences of their disobedience. This is what it's going to be like now that you have broken my law and taken upon yourself what was never meant to be yours. And so, woman, you're going to desire your husband. You're going to want to dominate him. He's going to dominate you, and you're going to have pain in childbirth. Man, you're going to struggle to work the earth. Where the earth would once have willingly given up its fruit, willingly grown things, now you're going to have to battle with it. You're going to have to irrigate the land. You're going to have to tame the land that once would have obeyed your every command. And so now the command that God had given them to spread the influence of the garden over this chaotic earth that once would have been easy is made difficult. Over the serpent, God says, now instead of walking on four limbs, you're going to crawl on your belly and you're going to eat the dust of the earth. And one day, the heel of the, man, the woman's offspring is going to crush your head. Even here in the curse, God pronounces doom over the serpent. And God finally removes the man and woman from the Garden of Eden. He removes Adam and Eve out of the garden. Now, through all of these curses, the one primary theme here is estrangement. Estrangement from one another, as men and women now struggle against one another, as men try to dominate women and women try to force their way up, up, over men, Estrangement from God as they're removed from the garden of God's delight. Estrangement from creation. The creation that they would have had such ease in cultivating, now they're estranged from it and they're going to have to work the sweat of their brows in order to make it produce anything at all. It's just one broken relationship after another here in the curse of the fall. And this is what our sin does. This is what human sinfulness does. It breaks relationships. It breaks relationships with our God. It breaks our relationships with one another, even into the most intimate of our relationships, the husband-wife relationship. Sin causes estrangement on every level. It causes estrangement from creation so that now you can't even be a human being on the earth without hurting creation in some way. Like it is impossible to live in the modern world in a purely clean way that honors the earth that we were supposed to cultivate. Sin has affected every single relationship that we have with creation, with our God, with one another. And so if this is the case, if it is the case that human sinfulness has harmed every relationship and caused estrangement in every single relationship that we have, then the gospel of Jesus comes in to fix and to redeem all of those relationships. 
We have this tendency in American evangelicalism to talk about primarily the relationship between us and God and that the gospel of Jesus is mainly about your relationship with God. There's an extent to which that's true, but when we emphasize that, we miss that the gospel is also about healing our relationships with one another. It's about healing our relationships with the very earth that God has given us, with the very creation in which we live. The gospel of Jesus is about healing us in absolutely every single way. It's about healing individual human relationships. It's about healing systems so that we are empowered to go and confront the evils of the world. It's about healing the broken earth on which we walk so that we can live in a way that honors creation. It's about healing every relationship. And so when we see the very first Christian community and we read about their priorities and how they live together, we see that very healing taking place. Members of Christ Community Church, friends, family, folks who are with us online, like never let your gospel be only about the individual's relationship with God. Never. It cannot be limited to that. It cannot be limited just to how my soul is doing with God. That's a self-centered, self-important gospel that in the end is no gospel at all. The gospel of Jesus is about healing everybody and everything and bringing all the brokenness of the world into alignment with who God is and his purposes for it. And so justice is central to our gospel. Creation care is central to our gospel. Personal, interpersonal reconciliation is central to our gospel. And yes, the reconciliation between us as individuals and our God is the center of our gospel. But reconciliation between us as a community and our God is essential to our gospel. The gospel of Jesus touches every sphere of human influence, every sphere of human life. And we dare not limit it but we embrace it in all of its scope because that's what we see the redeemed community of God doing when we see them gather in Acts chapter 2. And so we go to Acts chapter 2 now. Now, in verse 42, we begin, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Who are they here? They are the very first Christians in Jerusalem who have come to follow Jesus. So after Jesus' resurrection... He comes and he appears to more than 500 people and he spends like 30 days on the earth and then he ascends to heaven in view of hundreds of folks. And it's some time later, not a ton of time, but it's some time later that the Feast of Pentecost is happening. The Feast of Pentecost is practiced every single year. And at the Feast of Pentecost, as thousands and thousands of Jews from all over the Roman Empire are gathered in Jerusalem, the Apostle Peter stands up and he preaches the gospel of Jesus. He preaches the good news of Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ ascended and reigning as king. And in that day, 3,000 people become followers of King Jesus, followers of Messiah Jesus. And it's those people that now we turn our attention to in Acts chapter 2, 42. It's those are the they who are gathered, these early Christians in Jerusalem who are now gathered together to follow Jesus. And what did they do there? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. 
Now, this sentence is the thesis statement for everything that's going to come after it for the rest of chapter 2. This sentence is further explained then by what happens in verses 43 to 47. And so we read, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. So in 42, we read that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And then in 43, we read that the apostles were doing signs and wonders and everyone was filled with awe. Here's here's the connection here. The apostles' teaching extended beyond the words that they said. Just as Jesus' teaching as rabbi extends far beyond the words that he says to the actions that he does, to the ways that he cares for people, to the healing of ailments, to the bringing about of the kingdom of God to bear on his people, just as Jesus' teaching fully encompassed the way that he lived and the words that he spoke, when we read they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, they were devoted to everything the apostles were doing as followers of Jesus. Jesus, including the signs and wonders they were performing. This is how we know that the gospel of Jesus extends beyond my personal soul salvation into the social realm. The apostles, when they're out and they're teaching the good news of Jesus and they're bringing the gospel and they're sharing the good news of Jesus, they're healing people. They're showing people what the kingdom of God is really about. That the kingdom of God has come not just to save your individual soul, but to redeem your body, to redeem your your relationships, to redeem all of the brokenness of creation. And so when they're devoted to the apostles' teaching, they're devoted to everything about their way of life as followers of Jesus. These apostles here were the ones who lived with Jesus. They walked with him. They embraced his way of life. They absorbed it. They followed him as rabbi. They got the dust of his sandals on their robes as they walked behind him, observing everything that he did. And now they're doing the same things. They're doing what Jesus did, living as Jesus lived. And this first community of followers of Jesus is watching them, doing the same things for them that they were doing for Jesus. Watching their way of life, seeing how they carried themselves, watching the ways that they performed the miraculous, watching the ways that they healed people, watching the ways that they drew people together in reconciliation, watching the ways that they crafted this community. To be devoted to the apostles' teaching is to be devoted to the entire gospel of Jesus, to be devoted to healing in every realm and sphere of life, to stand in contradiction to the Roman Empire and to say, this is what the redeemed community looks like. You can't find this utopian, perfect community outside of Jesus. It doesn't exist. There were Greek and Roman philosophers who would talk about utopian uh, communities. And it's funny, their language mirrors what Luke writes here, or Luke mirrors them. And even in writing this description of the first community of Christians, what Luke is doing is he's drawing your attention to these other philosophers who have talked about the perfect community and saying, no, here it is. This is the redeemed community. This is what perfect community looks like. United in Jesus. And they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. What else were they devoted to? They were devoted to the fellowship. Now, if you just read this in English, and you read they're devoted to fellowship and to breaking of bread, you kind of like, what's the difference? Like, Why do you need to draw attention to that twice? And this just points to our 
trouble in translating this stuff. In Greek, the word for fellowship is koinonia. Koinonia and ekklesia are the two words in the New Testament that we most often associate and translate with the church. The koinonia is what we are about. It is the fellowship that we enjoy together. And it goes so far beyond like after Sunday coffee hour. We call that fellowship time. Luke would look at that and laugh. That's not what fellowship means to him. That's not what koinonia means in the New Testament. Koinonia means sharing life together. In some circles of the church, we call it life on life. We live our lives together. We devote them to one another. We give of ourselves and our possessions to make sure that one another are cared for and loved. And that's what we see happening, remember, in verses 44 to 45. So, we read in 42 that they're devoted to the fellowship, to the koinonia. And then in 44 and 45, Luke shows us what that looks like. Now, all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. That's what koinonia looked like for this community. Selling their stuff in order to make sure that the needs of their brothers and sisters were met. Now, this is not some, like, early communist socialist regime, right? This is not some early governmental takeover of stuff and redistribution of wealth. This is the early church coming together and saying, you know what? Those people that I'm with, my brothers and sisters, my community here is far more important than the stuff that I have back in my house. It's far more important than that plot of land I have sitting doing nothing. It's far more important than my wealth. Your well-being is more important than my wealth. If I'm doing really well in the world and I've got extra to share, I'm giving it to you if you don't have enough. That's what this early Christian community did. They valued people over possessions. They valued people over things. They said, look, if I got a house that's too big for me and my wife, I'll sell it and downsize so that I can give the money to somebody who doesn't have a home. If I've got four tunics at home and I really only need two, I'll get rid of two of them so that I can make sure that those who are unclothed in our community are clothed. Now this served two functions. One is you've got incredibly impoverished people coming into this community. And so this is the wealthy of the community saying, you know what, my stuff is not as important as the impoverished people among us being cared for and being loved and being fed and being clothed and being home. But there's something else going on here. When you began to follow Jesus early on, it meant losing a lot of your social status. It might mean losing your business contacts. It might mean losing your income. It might mean losing your position in society. And so you saw a lot of people in this early church fall from prominent social positions down to the level of being impoverished. And the only way they could make it, the only way they could live was to depend on one another for the community to come together and say, you know what? I think your flourishing is more important than my excess. And of course, we live in a world that is just rife with excess. We live in a world of of nothing but excess. We live in a world where if you don't pursue excess, something is wrong with you. If you say, I'm going to live simply, 
not only to identify with the poor, but to actually give of my possessions to make sure that people can live, to make sure that people are cared for. You're weird. I mean, people will look at that and be like, yeah, that's cool. Like, good job. That's really nice for you. That's not what I'm called to. If you're a Christian in the room, listen up now, because this is going to be hard. If you're a follower of Jesus, none of you are called to excess. I'm not called to excess. If we are followers of Jesus, there's not like something where the Holy Spirit, yeah, that's nice. The Holy Spirit called you to give up stuff, but he's called me to live so that I can reach the wealthy with my wealth. That ain't a thing. You don't see it in the New Testament. You don't see it biblically. It's just not there. Yeah, there are influential wealthy people in the New Testament. You know what they do? They give up their stuff to make sure other people are cared for. Consistently. So if anybody ever says to you, yeah, but there were rich Christians in the first century. Yeah, there were rich Christians in the Bible. And you go, yes, there were. And you know what they did every single time? They gave up their excess to make sure other people had their necessities. That's what the church did. Now, we got to be careful here and make a distinction between prescription and description. Okay, this is not a prescription for the church for all time that, that this is how we're supposed to live. We're supposed to give up everything we have and put it all in one pot and redistribute it. But we do have to read this description and say, if that's what the Holy Spirit did in those first Christians, what is he asking us to do now? We have to read these descriptions and say, if that's how the Holy Spirit consistently moved in the first church, then what does he expect of me right now? And to know that the Holy Spirit has not called any follower of Jesus to a life of lavish excess. He's called us all to love and to care for those among us who can't make ends meet. That's what koinonia was. That's what fellowship was. And when we refer to fellowship as primarily like drinking coffee and eating snacks with my buddies in the church, we have watered it down to a point that the New Testament doesn't even recognize it. Fellowship is about sharing one another's lives so much and so vulnerably that we can walk together through the fires of the world and have one another's backs and make sure that everyone in our community is cared for and has the necessities that they need. The reality of our world is that there will be inequities. The responsibility of the Christ follower is to recognize those inequities and to help bring them to an equal playing field as much as we can to take whatever extra I have and put it towards someone else's needs. That's what Christ has called us to. That's what koinonia is. That's what fellowship is. And so they were devoted to fellowship. Now they're devoted to the breaking of bread. And this is what I imagine most of you walked in thinking fellowship is. Breaking bread together. Enjoying a meal together. Being together. and Enjoying one another's relationships. The, the Church of Christ is a social body. It's a social body. We are called to be together and to fellowship together and to break bread together, to be in one of those company, to, to have meals together beyond potlucks, to actually be in one another's homes. So at this time, they're not getting together in one big building. They're going to the temple to pray, and then they're going home from the temple to one another's houses and having dinner together daily. That's how often. Now, later it would go to once a week because it just wasn't sustainable to every day be doing this, right? They had lives to get back to that they had to provide for their families and provide for the community. 
And so eventually it goes from daily to a weekly practice where they're, they're going to the temple or they're gathering together for prayer and then they're breaking out and they're going to one another's homes for dinner. There are no church buildings at this point. There are no mega churches at this point. There are no beautiful spaces like we have. Now, I'm grateful for this place. I'm grateful for this space right now. But the most intimate relationships you and I will build within the family of Christ will be around one another's dinner tables. It will be around the kitchen you know, counters in our homes as we're preparing a meal. It'll be standing at the sink washing dishes, not because we don't have a dishwasher, but because it's really nice to stand next to somebody and have a conversation while I wash dishes. To really invite one another into one another's lives. Oftentimes we invite, we approach inviting people over to our home as though we're running a hotel or we're running a restaurant. Everything's got to be perfect. Everything's got to be just in order. Everything's got to be just in line. The food's on the table before they arrive and nothing's cleared until after they're gone. Or at least it's cleared and then nothing's touched or washed until after they're gone. And when we do that, when we treat people in our home like they're customers at a restaurant, we never build intimate fellowship. The real intimate friendships will be built around clearing that table together and washing those dishes. The real intimate relationships are when you walk into my house and it is not perfectly spotless because I have two kids and I have nieces and nephews and we've got lots going on in our lives and it is not going to be Pinterest perfect and it's not going to be Instagram ready. It's just not. But I'm going to be vulnerable and let you into my life and know that I don't care if you judge how dirty my you know, windowsill is. Yes, last week mail is still sitting on the kitchen counter. But when I invite you into my home, and that's the state of it, what I'm saying is this is my real life, and I'm inviting you into my real life. Not something that I've put together to impress you, but to my real everyday life. When you are present in my home enough to see me get impatient with my children, then you know we have a real relationship. But if while you are present in my home, everything is perfectly nice and sweet and my kids are perfectly well behaved, we, we ain't got there yet. We're not super close yet. You're going to be present in my life enough to see me get impatient with my kids. And then we have an opportunity for real discipleship. Then we have an opportunity to really talk about what it looks like to follow Jesus. Because you know I'm not perfect and I'm not going to fail. Or that I am going to fail. I'm not not going to fail. Then we have an opportunity to say, you know what? Following Jesus does not mean I am sinless and absolutely perfect in every way. But following Jesus and being in intimate relationship with you means I'm going to invite you to speak into that with me. It means I'm going to invite you to share in my life. And to share in those moments of my own sin. And I'm going to trust in you and the Holy Spirit to speak truth into my sinful moments. But i got to be vulnerable with you before we can get there. we got to be present in one another's lives deep enough and long enough in order to get there. And so none of this is going to happen overnight. Maybe it will. Maybe you'll connect with somebody and like, boom, you're there. But most of these relationships are going to take time to cultivate. They take time to grow and build. And then finally... They're devoted to prayer. We see this at the end, right? Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. 
They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And so every day they devoted themselves to meeting in the temple. This means they're going for the prayer times. There are two prayer times in the temple in Jerusalem every day. And so they're going to the temple together to pray. Because the whole reason that they've been drawn together as a people is the act of God in Jesus Christ. They know who's at the center of their relationship. Who is at the center of your relationships? Oftentimes, if I'm really being honest, the person at the center of my relationships is me. I build relationships with people who can give me something, a sense of self-worth, a sense of superiority, a sense of power and control, a sense of comfort, because we share things in common. Oftentimes, the person at the center of my relationships isn't Jesus, isn't even the other person. It's me. How true is that for you? How true is it for most of us that we build relationships with people who benefit us? How, when was the last time you built an honest, sincere relationship with someone and you got nothing out of it? When was the last time you built an honest and sincere relationship with someone and the focus wasn't on what you could get? Maybe not even on what they could get. When was the last time you built an honest and sincere relationship with someone that was centered on Jesus? Who is the friend in your life who motivates you to pray? Who's the friend in your life who motivates you to read the scriptures? Who's the friend in your life who motivates you to become more like Jesus? Do you have any? A lot of us don't. Even in the church. We have grown up in the church. We've been in the church our whole lives, and yet we don't have a single friend that we could name who consistently motivates us to be more like Jesus. I'll tell you, I'm not that friend a lot of times. You would think as a pastor, like, that's easy for me. Like, yeah, every one of my relationships, my friends would go, yeah, he makes me want to pray more. He makes me want to be more like Jesus. He loves me so well, I feel like I'm with Jesus, and he makes me want to know Jesus better. And yet, if I'm honest... I'm not that kind of friend to a lot of people, even to my peers, my other pastors. A lot of us aren't that friend, and a lot of us couldn't point to that friend in our lives. Now, I'm not saying you got to change all your friendships. I'm not saying that you got to go out and you got to find new people. God's given you the people that He's given you for a reason. The challenge for us is not to lay waste to our friends and go find other friends who will motivate us to be more like Jesus. The challenge to us is to be that friend. This is not to beat us down. The grace of Christ says you are forgiven in every way that you have fallen short in relationships. But the power of the Holy Spirit says, now I want to make you more like Jesus in those relationships. And I want to make you into that friend you haven't been being. I want to make you into that friend that you want. If you want to draw those people around you, be that person. You want to draw those people around you who will help you to become more like Jesus, be the person who makes people want to be more like Jesus. Be the person who says, who, who, about who someone else says, yeah, they make me want to pray more. They make me want to love better. They make me want to read the scripture. They make me want to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. All of these four things, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayer, These are what our church communities are about. And I think a lot of people have been driven away from the church because we've lost sight of this. 
Because they go, your, your gospel is all about individual salvation, and yet I see all these broken people, these hypocrites in your churches. Your gospel is all about this individual salvation and singing some songs and make, feel good and feeling good about yourself, but you don't do anything for your community. Your gospel is all about your soul, but I don't see love proceeding from your place. I don't see love proceeding from your people. I think a lot of people have been driven away from the church because we have lost sight of these four things. And we've traded true Christian community. We've traded true Christian gathering for this social club built around my wants and desires and my entertainment. We've turned legitimate faith in Jesus into fire insurance. And there's a whole generation of people saying, I don't see the relevance of your church. I don't see the relevance of this. If it's just about me, I don't want any part of it. We're missing entire generations from the church because we've lost sight that the gospel is so much bigger than just getting together here on Sunday morning and hearing a sermon and going away feeling better about yourself. Your younger generations get a bad rap. But a lot of them are leaving because of the shallowness of our churches, not because we're too deep. They're leaving because of the shallowness of our churches, not because they disagree with the principles on which they're based, not because they disagree with the gospel, but because we haven't been fully living the gospel. If we want to be a church that loves our neighbors, that, seeks, that reaches our community, if we want to be a church where we see these pews filled with younger generations, then we need to be a people who are devoted to these four things, to the apostles' teaching in all of its fullness, manifesting all of the rule and reign of the kingdom of God seeking reconciliation with our relationships, reconciliation with creation, reconciliation with our community, and standing opposed to everything that, that tears down people. We need to be a people who are devoted to true fellowship, sharing of our things so that we can build one another up in Christ and we can make sure that provision reigns in this place. We need to be a people who are devoted to breaking bread, really building intimate relationships around our tables, welcoming one another into our homes, truly becoming family. And we got to be a people who are devoted to prayer, who are devoted to seeking the face of God in our relationships together and individually, really seeking our God and what he wants for us and who he is. And can I just tell you, I'm the first to fail at these things. I mean, can I just be really honest with you and say, I'm standing up here not in judgment of you, but in judgment of me. Because I'm not that friend. I haven't led this church to these four things. We come and we feast at the table of Jesus. And all too often, I'm feasting for myself. Not for you. I am as selfish as any person here. And when I read this text, when I read these verses, they're some of the most treasured verses to me. When I hold on to them and I read them, I see an indictment of myself. And I long to live in this community. I look back at the times and places where I have really experienced this kind of Jesus-centered whole community. And I long for it again. And this is what I long for God to do through my ministry here and through our family as we've gathered. This is what we need to be. And when we are that, 
when we are this community, that is the greatest evangelistic tool we have. Read these last verses. Listen to this. This is amazing. They're praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Every day the Lord is adding to their number those who are being saved. Why? Because of the strength of their community. So many of us in the evangelical church have been pouring ourselves into programs of evangelism. And how do I talk about Jesus? And how do I share the gospel in a two-minute soundbite? And here we read that their greatest evangelistic tool was just being the community that the Holy Spirit was putting together. It was the strength of their bond. It was the family of their community. It was seeing people provided for and cared for and loved and not judged that drew the people in. This is why they enjoyed the favor of everyone who looked upon them. People would look at these first Christians and go, I want to be like them. I want to know those kind of relationships. I want to have those kind of redeemed relationships. I want to know that I am loved by people. I want to know that when I fail and I lose my job or my child gets sick or some tragedy happens in my family, those people are there. I didn't have to call them. I didn't have to ask. I didn't have to beg for help. They just showed up. That's what this church was doing. That's what this community was doing. And because they were faithful to the whole gospel of Jesus and they were seeking healing and hope and reconciliation in everything that they did, the outside world looked at that and said, yes, that's what the community of God looks like. That's a God I want to follow. That's a God I want to belong to. That's the Messiah I want, the one who pulls us together like that. If we live like this, if we lived in this kind of relationship, We wouldn't have to worry about the two-minute soundbite of a gospel story. We wouldn't have to worry about how do I share Jesus in an elevator pitch. We would be out there saying, hey, come into my home. Have dinner with me. Let me love on you. Hey, let me introduce you to my other friends and my other family, all who follow Jesus too. And a world would find what it most deeply hungers for in our family right here. We would never have to do another evangelism program again. We'd never have to do some evangelism training ever again because the strength of our bond and our community would preach the good news of Jesus in a way that our words on an elevator never could. As we speak the truth of Jesus to one another, as we motivate one another to be more like him, to grow in Christ-likeness, we would see our communities transform. And those generations that walked away because they said, you don't really care or love your neighbors would come rushing in, finding what they are longing for in Christ through our family here. Let's pray. God, thank you for these words. Thank you for this image of this first community of Jesus' followers and for all that it teaches us, for the ways that it points us to your reversing of all of the curse of the fall 
Jesus, thank you that when you came and you lived and you modeled for us and you taught us and you died and you rose again, and now as you reign from heaven, you are in the business of reversing the curse. You're in the business of drawing us together and making us the community that we were always meant to be. God, I pray that we are a people who press into that vision, loving one another well, living vulnerably with one another and Lord, fulfilling the needs and the lacks that we have within our community. I pray we're people who value people above things always. God, I pray that as we press into becoming this redeemed community, Lord, you would draw our neighbors in. You would draw the community around us in. You would send us out loving and caring for our neighbors as though they were our own family because that's what you've done for us in the cross. That's what you've done for us in your sacrifice. And so I pray, Lord, we are a people who encourage one another mutually and encourage our community as we model for them what the redeemed family of God looks like. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.